0: Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.
1: Hello, I'm Adam Smith and I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Once again, I'm joined by three special guests who've all been immersed in the third day of the Alzheimer's Association International Virtual Conference. Uh, As with the last two days, the focus for our chat today will be what we've seen and heard from the conference, uh, so that we might highlight something that you've missed or inspire you to go take a look at. I'm gonna cut straight to the chase. Uh, Please allow me to introduce our three panelists. We have Danielle Wilson from Imperial College London Dr. Leo Hularis from uh, Cambridge University and Peterborough Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. It is a foundation trust, right, Leo?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, fantastic. And Dr. Anna Volkmer, who you will all know, is a speech and language therapist and academic from UCL. Hello, and thank you, everybody, for being here today. Uh, Anna, I'm going to come to you first time because that's, well, twofold. First of all... um, people will now know that we're not the same person because we're actually in a podcast at the same time. You and I talk all the time but we've never actually been in a podcast together before I realise.
0: I'm glad that we can now differentiate between us. Yeah, that's really significant.
1: And the first time I've gotten to introduce you as Doctor. Congratulations.
0: Thank you very much. I'm going with evil Dr. Volkmer. I think it works well with my surname.
1: It does. You'd be a character in, uh, and with some minions, I, I imagine.
0: Yeah, I was going for a Bond villain, and I'd like some henchmen, but you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Isn't that what the children are for? Are the children yeah, your exactly.
0: henchmen? <laughs> That's right.
1: So how does it feel? I feel yeah. like we've, we've been on this journey with you over the last couple of years that you've been writing for us and podcasting and doing all your blogs and webinars and things.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you say that. And yeah, no, it feels great. It's a bit of a relief, really, to get all the um, thesis stuff out the way. But it's also exciting to get onto the next stages. And everybody always said to me, you know, your, your PhD is almost your gateway to being able to apply for lots more research funding. So now I feel like there's, you know, the world's opening up in lots of ways, which is exciting.
1: Well and exciting that you at least are perceiving it that way because I think also as well we've done blogs and podcasts on this that it can also be the most scary of times too when you're starting to go oh my god what am I gonna do now?
0: That's true I think I to be fair I, I think that's very true for most people I think I'm a very lucky person in lots of ways because I came to this with a career already so actually I've I've always got that To fall back on and I found it really reassuring and actually really helpful in keeping me quite calm and whereas lots of my friends and colleagues around me when they were overwhelmed it was all consuming I think also probably things like having kids as well that reminds you that you know you can be beavering away on your thesis and actually if a child comes and shouts at you that has to be more important. (laughs) Keeping you grounded well well
1: done And congratulations again. It's fantastic. You're going to have to give me a new update for your bio on our website that still says you're a student. Um, And Danielle, I I have to say I was deliberately a little bit vague when I introduced (laughs) you at the start there because the last time we spoke you were uh, looking after clinical trials at Oxford but now I saw your emails change and you're at Imperial now. What are you up to these days?
3: Yeah, yeah. thanks Adam. So yeah, as you say, I was at... um, Uh, within Oxford uh, for the past couple of years, leading the Oxford Radiology Research Unit, uh, and also working across the university as well um, to try and embed AI technology, largely within radiology, actually, within the NHS. Um, So I'm actually back in London at Imperial, uh, five weeks into the new job, uh, and I am leading the centre, uh, the Care Research Centre, Um, as the commercialisation and centre manager at the UK Dementia Research Institute. Uh, So we focus on developing new ways to help people live well with dementia uh, using technology. So we might use movement sensors, ECG, other equipment uh, within the home to try and prevent, predict um, and to try and Perhaps manage that environment so that people can live um, longer and uh, much more kind of successfully within their own home. So that that was uh, what I was really interested in, um, kind of listening out for at this um, at this conference.
1: Fantastic! And actually, I didn't realise you were working for the DRI. Uh, in a past episode, we have had—is it Dave Sharp?
3: Yep. Yeah. Uh, he is. Yep. He's the director of the centre.
1: So we have had Dave Sharp. um, For anybody trolling through our back catalogue, in the session where we talked about the Alzheimer's Society's summit, care summit, I think Dave Sharp uh, did a talk for us uh, about what what work is going on in the DRI on care. So that's fascinating. Thank you very much, and congratulations on the new job. uh, (laughs) Thank you, Leo. It's it's a while since we've seen you, and of course, as a jobbing clinician, I imagine you've had a bit of a busy few months
2: yeah exactly it's been very busy I normally work half time for the university doing research related to Lewy body dementia and the epigenetic involvement of DNA methylation in in Lewy body dementia and Alzheimer's disease but but I also normally work half time for for the NHS as an old age psychiatrist and actually the last few months since the university has been closed I've been working full-time an inpatient psychiatric ward, looking after people with dementia, with all, all sorts of other psychiatric problems. So it's been it's been a busy few months, really.
1: I, it, well, although good, it sounds like that's the best place for you. I think um, it's good that they didn't try and scoop up all the psychiatrists and put them elsewhere. In in,
2: <laughs> I, th- I think people still get psychiatrically unwell, so it's very wise to have psychiatrists doing that and not not looking after people with chest infections.
1: Absolutely. So thank you again, uh, all of you for joining us today. Uh, The focus for day three of the AIC was the clinical manifestations and drug development. Uh, And so that will be what we'll talk about today. Um, So before I come to each of you to discuss your own highlights, I just want to pick up on a couple of what were the headline uh, talks for the day. Uh the one that caught the most attention on social media was uh Nick Fox from u c. l. session on early onset dementia uh anna you i think did you even get a mention in his or was that i i know Ida did who obviously has done podcasts for us before.
0: Yeah, I did it but I didn't quite make it. I didn't quite make the cut. He did email me and um, a few of the members of the team in anticipation of his talk and asked for advice. But it, what, one of the things I really, I guess I'm in a privileged position because I work with Professor Fox. So as he, he was talking, I basically knew everybody he was referencing and it was really, I really enjoyed. It's really nice to actually hear somebody you're, you're working with talk but then also hear them talking about the team as well so it was a real pleasure Um I really enjoyed it do you, I think if it, if I go through what he talked about um that might be quite helpful for us to then chat about but he basically talked about early onset dementia in terms of Alzheimer's so early onset Alzheimer's and spoke about how this accounts for quite a large proportion of all the early onset Alzheimer's all the early onset dementias, I'm sorry. And the the fact that these are generally non-memory led Alzheimer's and therefore can be really difficult to diagnose. And then he went through the kind of four main types. So he talked a bit about, he did talk a bit about the memory led early onset um, type, but also talked a lot about the logopenic variant. So the language led variant where people present with, real preserved social facade but often difficulties in repetition and word retrieval because of the problems with the phonological buffer. He talked about the executive difficulties some people might present with um, and often associated with the pre um, pre-senilin one variant and then the visual variant so the PCA posterior cortical atrophy. Um, and how those he talked a bit about how with PCA, you know, people often end up with multiple trips to the um, opticians before they then get maybe guided towards even psychiatry with a functional diagnosis before. And I think that often happens with the language led variant as well, the logopenics, that they often get diagnosed with a functional difficulty or an anxiety um, issue or even depression before they actually are able to identify that these young onset dementias are actually Alzheimer's. And then he spoke a little bit more about things like age of onset, um, what these syndromes overlap with, like corticobasal syndrome, um, a little bit about the genetics of it, essentially saying that it is a little bit more likely that it's associated with a genetic um, form if it's early onset, but it's still very rare and not, not... it's still very rare that it is genetic. Um, and he talked a little bit about mortality and life expectancy, essentially saying that um, they, people with the early onset Alzheimer's live an average of kind of 11 years, whereas people with the later onset live an average of, I think he said, nine years. And then he really came back to actually the more day-to-day stuff is about living with it and Um, talking about the impact on social isolation and the social isolation he came back to Covid and one of the things that Ida Suarez-Gonzalez has done in our um, team uh, at the Rare Dementia Support Group is she's published and collated a lot of work around what what's been done to support the people with the rare dementias in particular who are living with Covid Well, during COVID, sorry, who haven't got COVID themselves, but during COVID and what's been done in in terms of care. And then he also um, pointed out the fantastic work being done by the Rare Dementia Support, which I'm also part of. So the Rare Dementia Support at UCL is an organization led by um, Professor Seb Crutch, um, and they have built a support group for all of the rare dementias, including PCA, PPA, early onset Alzheimer's and a carers group and um, behavioral variant and they've they've um they do fantastic work in hosting support sessions and support uh, kind of talks and networking sessions and also actually being constantly on the phone to people they have um fantastic uh phone um I feel like I'm in an advert now but you, you know that people can phone up from all over the country and even beyond and we've actually what I found quite interesting at the minute we've actually found that we've had more calls way more calls um, at the moment during the Covid period to those lines and particularly so from my experience what the team happened what happens in that team is that the the team members take the calls and they direct the ones specifically where it's related to language or swallowing which is what I do as a speech therapist they direct them to me but I've had an overwhelming number of people and wanting to talk about communication because they feel so isolated and that is something that um, Professor Fox touched on but it was a really, really accessible talk and it was the second time he's given a plenary talk at AAIC so I think it was a great honour for him to do that a second time but it was, it was great, I'm a fan. <laughs>
1: It was. I think, um, yeah, I mean, people were raving about it on social media and I completely agree. I think it was uh, clear, concise, accessible. Uh, when the video started to play, I was a little bit unsure because I'm not always a big fan, I have to admit. I think they can be a little bit uncomfortable, if, particularly if technology doesn't work in watching those. But they, they really, I think they really did add to it. They were they were useful in the place where they were inserted. Um uh, so yeah, well done well done, Nick. Daniel and Leo, did you have anything to add to Anna's fantastic summary?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I really liked it as, as as Anna said, it made a very good summary. I also really liked that he started his presentation thanking all of the members of his team for, for all of the work, but also he, he made a, 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 a very good mention on all of the people and their families who have been taking part in the trials and the studies, which I think is very important to acknowledge.
1: A so few people are good at that. I'm, re- I'm recalling Shane Ludlow's uh, plenary from last year when he collected his award. He did th- very much the same, kind of making sure that everybody got the right credit throughout. It wasn't just a token gesture of, oh, and here are the other people in my lab at the start. I think that's, um, it shows um, a lack of ego there, which I think is fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Anna, for providing that wonderful summary. And Leo, I'm going to come to you next. Did you you attended the mechanisms of neurovascular dysfunction and interaction with AD, uh, AD pathology, uh, which uh, Costantino led- Ledicola led, um, and I think salt was discussed in there, as I butchered that name.
2: Yes, exactly. It was a really fascinating talk by Costandina Ledicola from Cornell University in the United States, and he actually. He's been doing this kind of work for several years. So he gave a very comprehensive summary of of quite a lot of work they have done in the field. Essentially, it it comes back to to, to a lot of the clinical work we do. He said in clinics, we diagnose people in memory clinics, about 70 or 80% of the people get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. But when we actually do the neuropathological studies, we see that the number is lower and most of the people actually have mixed pathologies, Alzheimer's and vascular disease as well. And starting from that point, his, his group has been trying to understand a little bit more about the contribution of cere- cerebrovascular disease in Alzheimer's disease and how the different pathologies interact. And he had very good material in his presentation. He, he explained exactly how the cerebrovascular system in the brain works and about its own auto-regulation mechanisms that, that the brain needs to ensure that it regulates the blood flow and how this goes wrong in in Alzheimer's disease and in dementia with the different types of cells that are involved in in the system. And and he said that while it, it is widely believed that amyloid and tau pathologies contribute to neuronal dysfunction and dementia, he also showed very good data about how Alzheimer's disease pathology actually affects the cerebrovascular system and then through that causing dementia. And he did, we do know very well that hypertension is, is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And he tried to explain the mechanism of that, but also how salt is involved, as you said, through a series of experiments. They The work mainly is, is in my, mouse models, but has, they have a lot of high profile publications and they actually showed that, that normally the, the brain has the own vascular regulation system. And what happens in Alzheimer's disease, there is a failure of this whole cerebrovascular system. That's through oxidative stress and they identify the particular type of cells, the perivascular macrophages that are involved in the process. And then it seems that the amyloid and tau pathology as well, hypertension, activate those perivascular macrophage cells and they cause dysfunction in all levels. And then through that, the brain is, is depleted of the nutrients and, and the blood flow. And then we have the clinical symptoms of dementia. And then he went on to talk about the salt and how that is causing dysfunction. Obviously, salt can increase hypertension and that can be a problem. But, but it seems that salt also has an independent mechanism of, of how they cause damage in the blood vessels in the brain. And it seems that salt directly affects the endothelial cells in the brain. And, and through that, through inflammation, it, it, it affects uh, the function of the blood vessels. What I thought was very interesting was that they, they then went on to find out more about how salt interacts with the, with the endothelial cells, looking at the specific inflammatory factors, quite, quite refined word, work. And they actually then came to the conclusion that salt directly affects tau hyperphosphorylation And in mice that had the cerebrovascular damage, when they gave them an anti-tau treatment, they still managed to rescue their their cognitive function, meaning that it's not just the blood vessel damage, but also the blood vessel damage associated with tau hyperphosphorylation. And essentially gave back the message that through through studying the cerebrovascular disease and and blood vessels in the brain, we, we can find modifiable risk factors to, to reduce the risk of getting dementia, but also open new new therapeutic targets, trying to ensure that the, the cerebrovascular system in the brain is, is working very finely. So I thought it was a very, very good talk and very good data. As I said, it was in mainly mouse models, so I think we need to see how, how that can translate to humans, but overall very, very high quality of work and as I said, work over several years. I think the message is we do need to reduce Salt intake, and and also manage the modifiable risk factors that we know very well, hypertension, and in general, showing that healthy lifestyle can can, can reduce our risk of getting dementia and the, the particular mechanism behind that.
1: That's a really good summary. Uh, thank you, Leo. Uh, did anybody else manage to get to that session as well? Yeah, uh, Anna. I-
0: Sorry, I went to that session as well and I really enjoyed it. I found it really accessible. I thought the visuals that he used to explain the, the mechanism as a non-medical you know medical person, I found that really, really helpful. It made it really clear. And the, when he went into the information on the dietary salt, I, I found it quite fascinating because he also explained something about dietary salt collecting in the guts. And causing um, something was it IL seventeen to be released, which in turn impacts on cerebral vascular function. And is is that right, Leo?
2: Yeah, exactly. So it seems that the inflammation and the signals already start from the gut, and then signal the, the damage response to the brain. So it was very very interesting.
0: Yeah, fascinating how it affect how you know that kind of not it's not just at the brain in the brain but also in the gut we don't think about all those different levels but equally you know that idea that we've always talked about high dietary salt being bad for you but actually why and how i thought that was really valuable made it very very accessible
1: it is i, I completely agree and as you say yet another modifiable risk factor to add to the list it's a pointer to change of lifestyle generally isn't it because i think whether that's reducing salt or getting the right amount of sleep the right diet, keeping your brain active, uh, taking more exercise. These are all the same things that we're told if we want to avoid strokes and diabetes and heart disease and and things like this. So it's kind of no surprise that this is a factor. However, understanding why it's a factor uh, is is important so it can be looked at further. Uh, Thank you, uh, Leo and Anna, for summarizing that. So let's Let's talk more generally about the stuff we've seen and heard. Danielle, you've been quiet. Let's come to you <laughs> first of all. Um, so, what did you see see and hear yesterday that caught your eye?
3: Yeah, sure. So, my previous um, work within dementia um, has been around clinical trials, recruiting patients into trials, and running really big prevention studies, um, and only being within um, the DRI. Uh, for the past five weeks, I wanted to go and see uh, what was happening within technology. And um, I really focused my attention there. So something that caught my eye was um, a presentation by Professor Ipsit Fahal um, at the University of Harvard, where he outlined um, mapping behavioural symptoms within, in, within dementia using passive radio sensing and how the digital phenotyping makes this work possible. Uh, And by that, he um, defined that as moment by moment quantification of the individual level human phenotype in situ. So using data from personal digital devices uh, to enable us to study perhaps how people move around their homes um, and what that then says about what might be happening clinically. So he used quite a good example of um, a patient with a depressed mood for example uh, and being able to use voice analysis perhaps using an Alexa device or your mobile phone to be able to track that but also using etigraphy, um, which is the study of movement to perhaps track sleep appetite or psychomotor symptoms and he then applied that to dementia so could we perhaps manage track agitation or at the other end apathy so his group have been working with mit massachusetts institute of technology to monitor this movement and behavior and using ai to then map these movements and what i really liked about his presentation was his um, use of this technology which is still fairly experimental uh, and then using it to try and help clinicians facilitate earlier intervention Uh, and they've been able to demonstrate that change of movement or odd patterns of movement could be used to make adjustments to medication or behavioural interventions and they've used it in in COVID patients as well living in an assisted living facility where they were able to measure um, breathing rate of those that were diagnosed with COVID and the changes between day one for example versus day four and obviously not having to have very close contact to be able to do that. So I really liked um, the evolution and the quick nature that that could be used within COVID patients. So I found that really interesting. Um, There are a couple of other presentations that caught my eye. Um, Do you want me to summarize those as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. please do, jump
3: jump, in. So one was um, work being led by Professor Anne Blanford at UCL, um, and was presented by Mo- Moira Bello uh, and it was an eye compass um, as they have called it and it was preliminary work really to get uh, the views of clinicians. So this was a, a dashboard, uh, a tablet or, or an app that could actually track um, a patient's progression uh, using individualised markers. So the clinician can pull this up, they can compare it to their previous trajectory, trajectory of other people with the same diagnosis, and it would also show progression over time. So I thought that was a really neat um, piece of work that could actually help use some of the technology that we're talking about to then translate that into the clinic, where it becomes really useful for clinicians treating um, patients with dementia, Alzheimer's but other diseases as well which need tracking over time and there were two other things that really caught my eye so digital biomarkers and this was presented by Professor Hirogo Dodge from Oregon Centre for Aging and Technology Uh, and she described the digital biomarker as using participants as their own universe which actually I really quite liked and using these digital biomarkers within clinical trials. So um, she has gone even further. So can we use technology such as movement devices, for example, in clinical trials as the outcome measures? Because actually, you know, I've scored two less points on the MMSE, or my CSF levels have gone up or down by a couple of standard deviations. Might not mean much to that patient in their own home. Yet, if they're sleeping better, or they forget to take their medication less regularly, that will have the biggest impact. So it's trying to use technology that we might see in people's homes in a meaningful way for those patients and their families to then translate that into outcomes for clinical trials. And I thought, Marrying up all of those things was incredibly interesting and a really emerging area, I think, of kind of watch this space. Um, And also the emphasis on using technology doesn't mean getting rid of the human in healthcare, but it means we can provide additional information or actually support clinicians um, to make perhaps better or more personalized decisions and then help those people with dementia and their families live longer in their own homes. So I really like that combination and taking it from the home into clinical trials and into the clinic as well. And then the last presentation um, was from Adam Hampshire at Imperial. So as part of the DRI with Clive Ballard from the University of Exeter and Gareth Williams as part of King's. And they outlined, um, results from the Protect study using Cognitract, which is a battery um, of assessments, um, which is actually an online battery. They've used it in 10,000 people without dementia, uh, participants that were over 50 years of age, to see if it could track uh, progress over time, to see if it, you know people would actually do it from the comfort of their own homes and actually is it cost effective as well and they were able to demonstrate all of those things actually it is cost effective you can track change over time um, and it is quite sensitive to change which could therefore mark advantages for clinical trials Um, can we ask people to do things from the comfort of their own home are they sensitive to that change and actually are they cost effective so I thought that was a really interesting presentation as well, and ties into the work that we do within the DRI uh, at the care research and Technology Center so it was good to see that within all of the other things that are being done worldwide really so I found those really interesting and I'd definitely give them a watch if you haven't
1: already thanks Daniel. I, I think we're only starting to scratch the surface, aren 't we with technology I think I think there's still a lot of concerns about the reliability of its use, and concerns about ethics of the data and things like that. But you know, uh, between that combination of, I saw an interesting stat yesterday somewhere, which I'm, uh, is probably somewhere at my fingertips around smartphone ownership in elderly populations in the mm-hmm. US was something like eighty percent. And there were more people with smartwatches than you'd actually imagine in Florida. I think it was over 50% of over 55 at the smartwatch or something like that. But that combination of smartwatch with your smart home devices actually starting to understand what kind of questions you ask and how often you ask. And did as anybody, the Blade, I, I love my sci-fi, but if you've seen that Ad Astra movie recently and then the more recent... Blade Runner film where they had these computer AIs that asked you questions and then listened to how you answered them to decide if there was something that some kind of intervention needed. Some, you can imagine your smart home asking you some questions every morning when you wake, when you wake up and combining with your smartphones. And if that's what it takes to be able to predict that you've got an issue in your 30s and 40s. to act on those modified risk factors then it might seem a bit sci-fi but but let let's I, I'm all up for that I love technology I'm I'm a techno techno positive rather than techno phobe um, I'm gonna be, between each asking each of you I'm gonna pick up on some I heard as well reading all mine in one go um, so the one I'm gonna mention first of all and I'm kicking myself because having asked everybody to make sure you knew who gave the talk. I didn't write the note down myself. Um, so this was the talk on use of AXSO5, um, which is a, a drug intervention for use in uh, agitation. Um, there's lots of data uh, in the talk, which I recommend you go back and look, but the, the main takeaway from this was over this five-week trial of what they call ADVANCE-1 trial, Um, this particular drug treatment had a 30% reduction on the CMAI scale in agitation. Uh, It's recommended that this might be only a short-term use, but 30% after, and you started to see the benefits after about a week or two, I think it was. So that seems like, I know right now there's, particularly on today's sessions, there'll be a lot of discussion around agitation and how to manage that through cognitive behavioral therapy and, and other other Non drug interventions, but I think when I think most people would agree that sometimes uh, short term drug might have its place and, and and if that is the case, having one that 's the right drug that 's effective um, rather than relying on ant- oh, the old fashioned antipsychotics is important, and axo 5 looks like it might have some potential, so uh, do go have a look at that talk. Um, what am I going to come to next anna what did what did you see? Yesterday.
0: Well, I, I, um, I looked at quite a few different and diverse things, but I just wanted to pick up on a poster that links with what yourself and Danielle mentioned. It was um, a, a poster by a guy called Alexander y- y- or Jonasson um, in the Department of Speech, Music and Hearing at KTH, Royal Institute of Technology. I'm not sure exactly where that is, but he was essentially describing the idea of early diagnosis of dementia for, through audio recordings, so using like so that you, you get somebody to do like a, a description of a, a picture, so something we often use in speech therapy and in neuropsychology is a cookie theft picture and then record, and then recording it and using the Google automatic speak, speech recognition model, and then actually using that to look at things like accuracy, precision, specificity, and recall recall and using that as an an early detector um, for for, um, dementia symptoms. And I know that's something that I've discussed with many people previously, this idea of like using your mobile device to pick up on conversation actually rather than, because we know that things like picture descriptions or answering specific questions has got um, some validity, but actually in language we think that conversation carries a lot more information about how people are managing cognitively and functionally. And so, but the problem of course with that is then, this isn't in the poster, this is more my reflection, is that difference is that actually if you're recording, using your Alexa or your phone conversations, you're actually recording people who aren't there, uh, sorry, who haven't consented. And I think that's often a problem with some of these devices and the ideas around technology, it's how do we get over consent? Because it's one thing, for example, Danielle described that example where people are looking at, at sensors and you can kind of monitor where you're walking. I looked at another poster um, and they were talking about a GPS monitor. But then there's another thing where you're capturing more in their environment, which is audio or video, which is something else but will provide so much more useful information. That's what I'm really looking forward to in the future is how we get over that hurdle and capture more of that. The other thing, I, I looked at lots of posters <laughs> because I think they had a lot more, probably because of the therapist in me, many of the intervention and the therapy stuff is more in the poster section. And there was a really nice poster I looked at which links to a, a talk actually that I did, one of the webinars um, that I did, Adam, on um, remote therapy, delivering things through the computer. And um, it was the poster was called the virtual interface for dementia management in COVID-19 era and beyond. And it was presented by someone called Paula Goss from the University of Toronto. Sorry. And she'd done a kind of, uh, I think, a um, systematic review of the literature on uh, delivering remote assessments. Or doing remote assessments like the Moca and the MMSE and the Boston Naming Test, and looked at whether, and basically demonstrated they were equally valid. The that in the review, they, it was demonstrated that they they're equally valid whether they're done remotely via video technology or in person. But then they they she also addressed, and I think this is quite nice because this is real what happens in reality in clinical. Uh, context is, you know, the research says, yeah, you can do all this stuff, but actually there's always barriers. And she addressed, took some of the barriers from the literature and um, kind of addressed them from, with information from the literature. And I think often we say, yeah, you can do everything remotely via video technology, but actually she was raising issues like, you know, there's a really limited access to technology. There's always technical interference, as we've experienced today. There, <laughs> there's always issues of privacy and security. Um, and there can be kind of issues in terms of people's actual knowledge and awareness of, of technology. And, and she presented a list of ideas and solutions, which I thought was just really neat to make it bringing the literature into the functional Kind of real domain. Um, and then the last poster I wanted to mention was something which I always think is really, I mean I see this all too often, it's a poster by somebody, so the poster is called an, a case of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, so ALS or MND as we call it in the UK, with a frontotemporal dementia manifested as naming and sentence comprehension disorder, by um, Yuan Zhang from Beijing, China. And essentially what he's saying in this poster is that um, normally it's not, I mean, it's very rare for MND to be associated with the frontotemporal dementia, dementias, but, but it does happen. And he was saying it happens more often with the behavioral variant, but then presented this example of somebody who he hasn't said this, but essentially, I would interpret this person having potentially more of a non-fluent variant of primary progressive aphasia because they describe this person as having problems with sentence comprehension. And I actually think this is more common than we realize from my clinical observations. So clinically, I, um, I off, this is the pe- these are the people who often get sent to me because they'll have been diagnosed with something a little while ago, so they'll be diagnosed with a frontotemporal dementia, often a non-fluent variant. And as time goes on, they develop more and more vulva symptoms. So symptoms that impact on their swallowing and um, their speech. And then ultimately they, swallowing is one of the highest risk issues, You know, people developing chest infections. And often it's really difficult or poorly managed because it's not as well recognized. And there's very little research in this area and I've had patients who've bounced around, you know, where the, um, where the speech therapists say, well, I don't know why this is happening because it shouldn't be happening. And medical professionals saying, well, you know, I don't know why this is happening either. But actually, I'm really glad they, they um, presented this because I know it's rare, and it, but it's really useful to have these case studies. And, it's, and I think what would have been a really nice conclusion is to say how they managed it. But again, Thanks. that's the interventionist in me.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Anna. Um, interested? Did anybody have any points to pick up on on Anna's? Pre- I think you definitely went looking for the things that are your specialist area. There, <laughs> that's why nobody else can comment because we're all like Anna is the expert on these things. Um, picking up on a couple more that I went to, um, I saw a talk from David Gordon from the Banner Institute. I went in search of this uh, because this was talking about uh, gene match. Um, and how they use GMATCH to enroll to the generation study, which was stopped early. Um, main takeaways from this for me, no real surprises, but they had uh, quite a high uptake of people who were interested uh, as a result from being on the register, but that drops down the longer you've been on it. So as you know, somebody who's had a, a hand in joint dementia research in the UK, knowing that the new registrants are the most active and motivated is no real surprise, but it, it sounds like um, GMATCH has some real potential, and I don't think we've got that quite same system in the UK yet, certainly not open in the... I know uh, APOE collected as part of Protect and Prevent and things like this, but but they're not open and uh, as open and, and as accessible as GMATCH is, so maybe that's something to look at for JDR in the UK in the future. Um, uh, Clive Ballard, of course. I, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder here, Leo. Are you going to talk about? Clive's I was about
2: talk? to talk about. Then that I will. Then I hours. will.
1: Then I will skip Clive Ballard's talk. Uh, we also saw uh, Biogen were were back in the auditorium, uh, presenting no new data um, from Engage and Emerge, other than to. To keep this in the spotlight, clearly, which Biogen are keen for us to do, and everybody's always very interested to hear what Biogen have got to say. Uh, but they were quite upfront in saying that there was no new data being presented; uh, that the emerge trial was the successful one, and engage was didn't reach its endpoint, um, and that that work uh, continues. Um, Anna, though, uh, just pick it up in your speech and language therapy. There was a talk from somebody in Cambridge you might want to go look at that, that tested out the reliability of Google's Auto Translate service oh. uh, in people with dementia and found it had a 35 to 65% accuracy. Um, but again, I didn't make note of the name.
0: That's all right, I'll look um, at that. I think that's quite common that a lot of these automatic speech recognition systems, um, they find it difficult to cater for um, accent but also any speech or language errors, so then they become less and less accurate.
1: Um, the last point I will make before I, I let uh, come to you Leo, was there, there have been a few presentations thinking about the impact of COVID-19, um, so Hugo Goertz um, ha- gave a presentation that explored that COVID had interrupted many trials. And as a result, they would be missing lots of data. And they were looking at how they could uh, create a modeling platform to essentially, hopefully reliably fill in the gaps. Um, I, I, I have to say, I don't think I fully understood this. So I would recommend that if people are interested in how you might fill in the gaps from your uh, studies that were interrupted by COVID, you might want to go watch that talk by Hugo. Um, also, um, Kath Mummery uh, is giving a uh, gave an introduction to a professional interest area talk, and I think later on this week and uh, through the PIA's over the coming weeks, they're going to be looking at how trial sites have been affected by by COVID nineteen uh, as well. Um, and S. Collinson from a talk gave a an argument that there would need to be more online engagement and more use of online cognitive testing because of the impact of COVID and people's um, hesitancy to visit healthcare settings um, and and nervousness around that so we might find this might be the drive that we finally need to move towards more home-based diagnosis rather than clinical settings which has been in the background for quite some time but the last piece from COVID as well was a press release from the AAIC um, that there's there's been announcement from Alzheimer's Association of a new research for uh, a new research study to globally track and understand the long term impact of exposure to the uh, novel coronavirus on the brain, um, which I know something is that's been something getting talked about a little bit at UCL as well. So it'll be interesting to see um, what the, the details of that study uh, I would that press release is online they have tweeted about it as well so I think if you're interested in the details of that uh, that study that they're just kicking off I would suggest you go find it on social media. Uh, Leo that's my romp through the headlines that i would written down I'm, notes are all in the bin now <laughs> please tell us what what yeah, were your lot, highlights from lot, lots
2: of Wonderful and fascinating talks yesterday. I attended the session called Repurposing Drugs, Targeting Glia and Inflammatory Mechanisms. And there were quite a few good talks there. Howard Philit from the ADDF, the Drug Discovery Foundation, presented some, some, some studies they are doing on senolytic therapies. So compounds tra- targeting cellular senescence as an alternative way of trying to, to, to tackle neurodegeneration There was an excellent talk on microglia cells in Alzheimer's disease by Knut Bieber. He's in a pharma company in Germany, but he he gave a very good explanation of the different types of microglia. And then some of them might be protective, some of them harmful, harmful and some others we don't really know. So not just all microglia are the same. And what was the take home message from me from that one was that actually mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, their microglia is different from from microglia in, in human brains, and I think that's an important message, and for any sort of translational aspects of that. And then it was Clive Ballard, as you mentioned before, from Exeter University here in the UK, and how they used publicly available transcriptomic data to to find drug targets, repurpose drug targets for Alzheimer's disease. They started from they created a transcriptomic signature of Alzheimer's disease, which is publicly available data. Then they used the connectivity maps of different compounds, tested in cancer cell lines, and they found which ones would be relevant for this transcriptomic signature, and then tested those and came up with about 20 compounds that are of interest. And now they, they do more work on that. And also on a Delphi consensus, consensus study and how those have led to some clinical trials. So that was interesting. And there is ongoing work on the GLP-1 uh, analogs and then how those might be a good target uh, and some data coming out. So some hope there. Some hope that there are still trials, there are still targets going on. And uh, there was a lot of uh, other sessions on dementia with Lewy bodies yesterday. There were sessions on biomarkers looking at EEG. Uh, A lady from Italy, Laura Bonanni, talking a lot about EEG work and Lewy body dementia. Uh, Jim Leverence from from the United States on the DLB consortium, a large DLB study in the US, trying to understand more about people with Lewy body dementia. Uh, uh, As well as some new assays in CSF to to measure alpha-synuclein. So people nowadays use assays that are used for prion proteins. To, to, to measure alpha-synuclein in the CSF a new way. So hopefully we will come up with, with biomarkers for, for Lewy body dementia as well soon, as well as using FTG-PET and the singular gyrus island sign on FTG-PET to help distinguish Lewy body dementia from, from, from uh, other neurodegenerative diseases from Kegel, Kamparty. So I thought those were very interesting talks on Lewy body dementia as well as some on the neuropsychiatry and behavioral neurology uh, talks. Again, on Lewy body dementia, Parichita Choudhury from the Mayo Clinic presented how perhaps males with DLB are different from females with DLB presenting with slightly different symptoms, which I thought, again, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And Frederick Planck from Strasbourg presenting data on perhaps some, some new different autonomic symptoms in DLB that we often overlook in in clinical practice around sweating and uh, more lacrimation, tears, associated with peripheral autonomic dysfunction. So I thought that was all very interesting things going on. And some posters as well I visited, but the posters were actually from different days. And from Cambridge here, James Rowe gave a, a very fascinating talk on demand about the noradrenergic system involvement in progressive supranuclear palsy. And it was actually very interesting to see the work they do in their group. They see people in their clinics, they scan their brains using seven Tesla MRI scans focusing on the locus ceruleus. And then they also look into the neuropathology when those people donate their brains. And actually data they have obtained from those studies, they have used them for clinical trials uh, using atomoxetine in progressive supranuclear palsy. To look into some of the symptoms, so overall a very comprehensive approach uh, targeting the noradrenergic system in progressive supranuclear palsy.
1: Fantastic, thank you, Leah. I, I've absolutely failed to uh, keep this anything like to time, but it's so hard because I think there's so much going on and. Uh, everybody's been so many fascinating talks that everybody wants to, to share, and, and I think this hopefully will still be useful. Because of course, I believe it. Particularly if you're an I Start member, I think all the talks and the content from the conference is going to be available over the next month. So please, I, I hope the podcast today has inspired you to go look something up. Uh, last chance now is put your hand up. Nobody else can see this, but if you've got some uh, a talk to plug yourself. That you'd like to mention or a poster that you'd like to highlight that you're presenting okay let's go to that da- danielle was first danielle
3: yeah I'm, I'm not presenting um this year but i hope that we will have a bigger presence next year actually but it was something that you said um adam about covid and it really is kind of two sides of the coin the the loss that we you know that everyone suffered you know the funding the experiments that have lost data etc but I think it's also um, the opportunity that it pre- presents to really push forward the use of the remote um, assessing patients um, and how we do that and how we do that quickly and how we assist you know, our older populations to be able to do that. So I just wanted to kind of loop back into that because I think it's really important.
1: I agree, thank you Danielle. Uh, Leo?
2: Yeah, also I'm not presenting something this year but I wanted to mention my colleagues uh, from Cambridge, who are actually presenting a lot of new data on the Prevent Dementia study here from here in the UK. A lot of the imaging data is now coming in. So, how, how different are people who have a family history of dementia compared to people who don't have that and the changes in their brain images? So, are there names yeah. who anybody specifically
1: we so, should go look at? Yeah, for?
2: from Elijah Mack, Audrey Lowe, and Maria Elena Dunavi. And Li Su as well. If if people search on the abstracts, prevent dementia study, that those will come up. Very interesting data coming out.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Leah. Um, I uh, also I'm um, co-author on a poster that's been presented today by uh, Professor Yunhui uh, Zhang from uh, Sydney University, where I have a collaboration with them on on use of registers, and this looks at comparing the different study recruitment registers from Uh, three different places in the US and Australia and the Netherlands and the UK as well. So please do go give that a look. Um, The the last study I I didn't mention, but I I saw a great uh, presentation on a trial bus, which is this is a huge trailer. Imagine those kind of imaging trailers that we see for breast screening and things Mm -hmm. that get towed around to various places. They created one of those as a clinical trial site um, to, to... particularly take to people in Florida where there were huge populations of people but half an hour from a trial site. Half an hour really didn't seem too long but half an hour was apparently too far. (laughs) And It it looks amazing. The first couple of slides are sharing it all and then the last three slides are telling you what a nightmare it is. (laughs) Between staff who live nowhere near it and have to travel miles and not being able to keep anything in it and finding places to park it and getting it level and then the costs of moving it from place to place. It sounds horrifically complicated, but they they were still keen, having spent $400,000 just on making it to to make sure it paid for itself. So have a look. I thought it was a great idea at first for Scotland, and by the end, I would talk myself out of it. Thank you very much to our uh, panelists, uh, Leo, Danielle, and Anna. I think the big takeaways from today are tech is good. We should embrace technology. Everybody should go watch Nick Fox's talk, which is available online now. Uh, There's hopefully a potentially exciting new drug for use in agitation, but only where absolutely necessary. And we should all be taking in less salt. Um, Thank you very much, everybody, again. We'll be back tomorrow uh, with discussing day four. Um, Please remember to like, subscribe, and leave a review of our podcast uh, through the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Tomorrow, I'll be joined by uh, uh, Riona Bacardal, Esther Wizerki, and Dr. Byron Kreese uh, to discuss what I think is the care day, which is today, of course. We're all going to be rushing off now and um, looking at those. Thank you very much, everybody.
0: Thank Thank you. Thank you.
1: Uh, Enjoy the rest of the conference. And uh, thanks again.
0: Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.